This past weekend, our family had family movie night. And for our family movie night, we watched the movie Soul Surfer. If you're not familiar with the movie, it's about a young woman, Bethany Hamilton, who loses her arm uh, in a shark attack while surfing. And it's really the story of how she overcomes adversity through her faith in Jesus and goes on to become a uh, national champion surfer as well as an amazing witness for Jesus. It's a great movie. Uh, We enjoyed it. But one thing I noticed when you're watching a movie, and it worked with that movie, it works with any movie, is that uh, especially a, a movie that has rich characters in it, you find yourself as you're watching the movie identifying with the characters. In that movie, for example, I thought to myself, what, what if I was a dad whose child lost their arm in that kind of accident? How would I respond? What would I do? Or you could see yourself in the character of the best friend and how would I feel if it was my best friend who went through that and I was out there uh, with that person when that happened and I was scared for myself? And for, How would I respond? How, how, how would I act? Or you can see yourself in the character of Bethany. How would I respond if I lost my arm like that? Would I continue to trust in Jesus? And, and the power of the story is it draws you in and you begin to think about yourself in connection with a character in the story. And if that identification continues, one of the really powerful things that can happen when you watch a movie is you can actually start to think about that character and the things you're learning in connection with that character in regards to the things in your own life. You can watch a movie like Soul Surfer and say, okay, well, I didn't lose my arm, but I lost my job. Am I responding to the loss of my job the way that Bethany responded to the loss of her arm? Do I need more perspective, just like she got more perspective, to be able to see what God is up to? You see, that's the power of narrative. It draws us into the story. It happens whether we're talking about the narrative in a movie, or the narrative in a book, or the narrative when you hear a testimony. It's also true when we talk about the narrative portions of the Bible. See, the Bible is, in many ways, a gigantic story. It's a story of God creating, of humans rebelling, of God redeeming, and God ultimately bringing creation to a point of restoration, redemption, and rescue. But in addition to this giant story, the Bible is made up of many smaller stories as well. David and Goliath, Jesus being led into the wilderness to be tempted, Stephen being martyred for his faith. And when you read these stories in the Bible, they're designed to draw us in. Now, I say that to you because we're embarking on a study of the book of Joshua. And the book of Joshua is different than the book of Hebrews that we just finished. In the book of Hebrews, there's a lot more sort of, what would you say, direct statements. Things like, offer to God the sacrifice of praise. Well, there's no question what you're supposed to do with that. It's pretty straightforward, it's pretty clear, maybe hard to do, but it's straightforward. Joshua, however, has a lot more stories. It's got a lot more of the narrative. What are we supposed to do when we read these stories in the Bible? Well, that's what we want to talk about today. How do you read the stories of the Bible in such a way that they have the impact on us that God means for them to have? So please, if you will, take a Bible and turn to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, if you need to borrow a Bible, we would love 
for you to take one of the Bibles from the rack in front of you or underneath your seat and turn to page 169. 169 is Joshua chapter 1. While you're turning, let me try to frame the discussion that we're about to have in some language that at least for some of you may sound familiar. If it doesn't sound familiar, it's fine. But while we're turning, some of you may come from a tradition which tends to divide the Bible up into what we would say are prescriptive portions and descriptive portions. What's meant by that, prescriptive portions are those statements in the Bible that prescribe what you're supposed to do. They're things like offer to God a sacrifice of praise or honor your father and mother or thou shalt not lie. They're very straightforward and when you read them in the Bible, they're simply telling you exactly what you're supposed to do. There is another section or other portions of the Bible that some people have said, those are descriptive. They're not telling you what to do. They're describing what happened in the past. Well, what we're talking about today are the descriptive portions of the Bible, the narrative portions, the stories. And I just want to tell you up front that that distinction between prescriptive and descriptive, I don't find that to be helpful. Here's why. When my wife says to me, honey, the trash is full, that's a descriptive statement. She's describing the state of the trash can. But only a fool would think that that statement was there simply for information's sake. (laughs) Thank you, Don. (laughs) Yet, it's not simply, hey, I thought you might be interested. I thought you wanted to know how much trash was in the trash can. No, 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 no. It's a summons to action. Likewise, when God says Joshua led the children of Israel across the Jordan River, that's not merely informative. He's not saying, hey, I thought you might be interested. It, too, is a summons to action. But what action? And how are we supposed to know what to do with that? That's what we're talking about this morning. Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. We spent a couple of weeks on these two verses. It's because they're the most important verses in the book of Joshua. And we need to understand exactly what they're saying so that we can get where God wants us to go in the book of Joshua. Last week we talked about meditating on God's word day and night. The phrase we're really thinking about this morning is, verse 8, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Everything written in it. Not just the commands, not just the prescriptive portions of the Bible, not just the things that we think are written directly to us, so that we can do everything in the Bible. And the question is, we know how to do honor your father and mother. We may not always do it, but we know what it means. 
But the question for us this morning is, how do you do the stories of the Bible? How do you do Joshua led the children of Israel across the Jordan River? Because this says, what God wants from us is to do everything that the Bible says. Then we will experience success. Then we will experience God's version of prosperity for us. How do we do that? Well, what I'd like to share with you is a way how you can do the stories of Scripture that's been helpful for me. Now, you need to know I come from a background in engineering. What that means is I'm pretty comfortable with the sort of prescriptive portions of the Bible or the things where it says, do this. That's pretty clear. Do that. From that, you see these timeless truths. And when it says, thou shalt not lie, you take that timeless truth and apply it to the particular situation in which you find yourself, and you try not to lie in that situation. That comes somewhat naturally for me. However, I've seen or discovered or used a way of reading the stories or the narrative portions of Scripture that does not come naturally to me, but has been very helpful to me. It doesn't come as much out of a math and science background, but seems to resonate more with artistic or creative types. That's what I want to share with you this morning. How do you do the stories of Scripture, thinking about them from a more artistic point of view? The way to do that is when we see in verse 8, do everything written in the Bible... It reminds me of a verse in the New Testament, James chapter 1, verse 22. James chapter 1 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Meaning, don't just open the Bible and start reading the book of Joshua and go, Well, that's a nice story. That's just listening to it. That's like when my wife says, The trash is full. I'm not supposed to just listen. I'm supposed to do what she's saying, which is empty the trash. James is saying, look, when you come across Scripture, don't just read it for information's sake. Don't just read it as an interesting story, as a nice historical fact. Do what it says. Now, some of you who may be familiar with this verse in a different translation may know that you could literally translate it. Don't be hearers of the word only, but be doers. Doers of the word. Now, the interesting thing about the word doers is it's a word that comes out of the artistic side of life. That exact same word in James 1, which is translated, do what it says, be doers of the word, is translated in the book of Acts as the word poet. It's the word that you would use for poet. Many ways you could say what James 1 is saying, be a poet of the word, or perhaps better or easier to grasp, be a performer of the Word. Don't just listen to the Bible, perform the Bible. Act out the Bible. And in this way, it kind of opens up the idea of thinking of this in terms of things like the arts, like drama. If you think of life in terms of drama, God is the director and the producer of the drama of life. You and I... We're the actors in the drama. The Bible is the script. It's the, one, it's the thing that's giving us the direction for how we are to live out our lives. And what James is saying is, perform the script. 
perform God's word. Now let me give you some examples to try to illustrate what this looks like. The first one comes from the story of Stephen. The story of Stephen in Acts 7, Stephen is put on trial for his faith in Jesus. He's brought before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council. And before the Sanhedrin, he gives a testimony as to his faith in Christ. We pick up the story in Acts chapter 7, verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, meaning heard Stephen's speech, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They do that because they think it's blasphemy. Stephen is equating Jesus with God, giving him equal authority, and those who are listening think this is blasphemy. So they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Okay, stop there for a moment. If you're Stephen, and this is your story, now you'll notice nothing in here is telling you exactly what to do. If you're Stephen and you're trying to figure out how do you behave in a situation like this? How do you behave when you are being wrongly accused for your faith in God, when you're being wrongly accused of blasphemy, and when you're being killed for your faith, being dragged outside the city gate to die? What are you supposed to do? Well, if you look through the Old Testament, for a command that says when you are being wrongly stoned for blasphemy, say this or do this, you're not going to find it. If you look in the Old Testament for something that tells you exactly what to do in this situation, you're not going to find it. So how are you supposed to know what to do? How are you supposed to know how to act? Well, what did Stephen do? Let's watch the rest of the story, what he does. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Now where in the world did Stephen get the idea that when you're being wrongly accused for your faith in God, when you're being wrongly accused for blasphemy, when you've been dragged outside the city gate to die, this is what you're supposed to say. Well, let's look at Luke 23. Luke 23, Jesus, who's being wrongly accused of blasphemy, who's been taken outside the city gate to die for his faith in God, in that situation, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then a little bit later in that same chapter, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, When he said this, he had breathed his last. What's Stephen doing? He's playing the character of Jesus. Now, hold on. I'm not saying that Stephen is Jesus in some sort of way. What I'm saying is, is when Stephen is trying to think, what do I do in this situation? He does Luke 23. But how do you do Luke 23 since there are no explicit commands in Luke 23 that say, when you're in this situation, do this. He's seeing himself in the role or the character of Jesus. He's saying, 
I'm doing the things that Jesus was doing. I'm being accused for my faith the way Jesus was being accused for his faith. How am I supposed to act? I'm supposed to entrust myself to God and I'm supposed to forgive those who are doing this to me. You know, we heard about what happened in South Carolina last week, right? How are you supposed to respond when people treat you, uh, when, when, when death comes because of your faith? When you're in a church and someone comes in and guns you down, how are the people who are around supposed to respond? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Playing the role, seeing yourself in the character. Stephen sees himself doing what Jesus did, and he says, if I'm going to act like Jesus, i got to do what Jesus did in these situations. That's how he did Luke 23. Let me give you a second example. Ten years ago, uh, I came to work at this church as the associate pastor. Uh, I came here with the uh, understanding that I was going to work for uh, Ed Dobson, who was a senior pastor, for four or five years and have the opportunity to learn uh, from him and be able to serve uh, with him. My wife and I moved back to this country uh, in April on a Monday. We went to lunch with Ed and his wife, Lauren, on Tuesday. He said, I'm resigning on Sunday and I thought I should tell you first. (laughs) So we were back in the country. We had been here for 24 hours, and everything was turned upside down, and we came to start work at the church, and they're like, well, we need someone to help preach. And so they said, how about you? You have to do it. And so I started preaching. Along the way, this was a very awkward time for both me and Lisa, Because here we were uh, having to do the preaching ministry, part of the preaching ministry at the church, and a number of you very kindly and very graciously were nominating me for the job. And along the way, I know that there's a search committee, I know that they're out there doing a search, but I'm thinking to myself, God was making it more and more clear that I thought he was calling me to do this, but I was faced a quandary. What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to apply for the job? Am I supposed to sit down with the search committee and say, hey, look, I know that I'm inordinately young for this, and I know that I'm horribly inexperienced, and I know that it makes no sense whatsoever, which it didn't. But if God's with me and he's calling me to do this, don't be afraid. We can do this. Or was I supposed to just kind of sit quietly and wait and say, okay, God, this is in your hands. You do with it whatever you want. Well, if you look in the Bible and say, Where's the command that tells you whether you're supposed to apply for a job or not apply for a job? You're not going to find one. Well, what was I supposed to do? Well, I found myself in the book of 1 Samuel. Specifically, 1 Samuel 16 and 1 Samuel 17. In 1 Samuel 16 and 1 Samuel 17, the words of the story basically jumped off the page and I find myself resonating with the character of David. I'm reading the story, and here's David in 1 Samuel 16. David, who's way too young and inexperienced and has nothing going for him, is anointed to be king of Israel. I think, aha, I get it. He just stays tending the sheep. Samuel the prophet comes and finds him, anoints him to be king. I read 1 Samuel 16, and I think, great. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm not supposed to do anything. Then I turn over, and I read 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17 is the story of David and Goliath. Saul is looking for somebody who can fight Goliath. And again, David is too inexperienced, doesn't have the abilities, but yet God is calling him to do this. But in that case, he applies for the job. He says to Saul, hey, I can do this. I know that you don't think I can do it, but I can because the Lord is with me. Well, now I was stumped. 
What was I supposed to do? 1 Samuel 16, don't apply. 1 Samuel 17, apply. Well, I got to do one or the other. Which one is it, Lord? Am I supposed to tell the search committee? Am I supposed to turn in a resume? Am I supposed to do something? Or am I supposed to sit quietly? Well, in the middle of the confusion, God said, well, which story are you in? I don't know. Which story am I in? And he says to me, well, what changed between the two stories? Well, it's not David. He's the same. He's young, inexperienced in both cases. Nothing changes from 1 Samuel 16 to 1 Samuel 17 with regard to David. What does change is who's doing the looking. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel the prophet is listening to God. God sends him to Bethlehem and says, I got a person there who's supposed to be king. Samuel goes and sees Jesse, David's father. Jesse, I want to see all your sons. So Jesse lines up everybody except David. He leaves him out tending the sheep. Samuel looks at all the boys and he says, you got to have another kid. There has got to be another boy here somewhere because none of these are it. You see, Samuel is going to find David even if he goes running in the opposite direction because Samuel's listening to Jesus. In 1 Samuel 17, Saul's doing the searching. And Saul couldn't have found God's man in a million years. He wasn't looking in the right way. He wasn't listening to God. He was looking for the wrong things. In that case, David had to apply for the job. In 1 Samuel 16, David could just sit back and wait for God to come find him. So God said, well, which story are you in? So I took a look at the senior pastor search committee. And on the senior pastor search committee, there were a lot more Samuels than there were Saul's. God said, you're 1 Samuel 16. I knew then what to do. Nothing. Tend the sheep. And if God wants to come find me, here I am, Lord. I'm ready to do whatever you want to do. That's doing 1 Samuel 16. There's nothing in 1 Samuel 16 that says you're not allowed to apply for a job. 1 Samuel 17 tells you you can. But how do you know which one you're supposed to do? You find yourself in the story. I found myself in the story of 1 Samuel 16, and God used that to help me know what I was supposed to do. Third example. We just had the privilege and joy of commissioning Brian and Jen for the work that they're going to do in Uganda with their girls. Now, when it became clear that we were doing their commissioning with this service, I thought, well, let's ask them, was there a story in the Bible or something in the Bible that God really used to help guide and direct you in this drama, in this thing that you're doing? Their response was Psalm 121. We lived every word of it. That was the psalm that Chad read as we prayed over them. See, that's the idea, Psalm 121. It's not just a psalm you're supposed to read as, oh, this is an interesting historical thing that happened to David or someone else. This is their psalm. This is the word of God that God's given to them to tell them how to act in this situation, to guide them along the way. When fears come about moving to Uganda or about all of the circumstances or raising the money, Psalm 121 says, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. I'm your protector. I watch over you. Nothing bad is going to happen to you because I'll take care of you. That's God saying, look, you're living Psalm 121 right now. This is what I mean when I say to you, whatever you're going through, find your psalm. 
because it will give you the, what are you supposed to say if you're feeling inordinately frustrated with God and abandoned by God? Well, if he leads you to Psalm 22, what you're supposed to say is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What are you supposed to do if enemies have cropped up all around you and you're terrified? If he leads you to Psalm 27, you're supposed to say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? You're supposed to wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. See, this is how the Bible works. If you're just looking for simple statements that say, do this, don't do that, you're going to miss huge swaths of the Bible, which we're supposed to do. Brian and Jen are doing Psalm 121. Fourth example. Four years ago as a church, we were preaching through the book of John, and we got to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is a story of Mary, uh, who, uh, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, who pours out an expensive jar of perfume on Jesus' feet. Now you read this story, and it's this beautiful picture of Mary loving Jesus and expressing her incredible gratitude to Jesus for what he's done uh, in raising her brother from the dead and being the Messiah and all of these things. Well, we're preaching through this, and as the preacher, I'm asking myself the question, okay, this is a really beautiful story, but how do you do John 12? There's nothing in that story that commands us to do anything. It's just a story of what Mary did. How do we do John 12? Joshua says, do everything in the Bible. How do we do that story? Well, as a church, we began to pray and say, okay, well, Lord, how do we do this story? And where God led us was to see ourselves in the character of Mary. We resonated more with Mary in that story than with Jesus. And we said, how do we, like Mary, express our gratitude to Jesus in such a way that the people around us will say, whoa, 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 that's a bit extravagant. That's a little over the top. Don't you think that's too much? Well, where God led us was to take what we called an extravagant offering, and he led us to the idea of building him a prayer garden. The way we got there is in John 12, the big deal is the fact that the jar of perfume, the aroma fills the house, and it's a beautiful, sweet smell. Well, when you look in the Bible, the aroma that God loves best, according to Revelation, are the prayers of the saints. And so we're building him a prayer garden. There's no utilitarian function to a prayer garden at all. You can't hold a meeting in there. You can't have a youth space in there. You can't have children. It's simply there to help people pray. Just like a jar of perfume poured out on feet. There's no utilitarian value to that. What are we doing? We're trying to do John 12. Now here's just sort of an interesting side note that kind of encouraged us that maybe we got it right. Four years ago, we haven't heard any of this since. There was a couple of people who said to us, wow, that's a lot of money we've raised. Wouldn't it be better to give that money to the poor? Now, when I heard that, that was immediately a red flag because in John 12, that same exact line is uttered. Do you know whose line it is? It's Judas's line. Now, what that said to me was, No, that's not what we're supposed to do. We're doing what Mary did because we're getting the same response Mary got. If we weren't doing what Mary did, everybody would think, yeah, this is a good idea. But the fact that some people said, no, 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 that's too much. That's too extravagant. We should give that money to the poor meant we were actually doing John 12. That's the point. If you look in the Bible, simply for statements that say, You have to build a prayer garden. You're never going to find them. 
But if you're trying to do everything written in the Bible, then you have to do not only honor your father and mother, you also have to do John 12 and 1 Samuel 16 and Luke 23 and Psalm 21. That's why Jesus, when he gets done with the story of the Good Samaritan, he says, go and do likewise. The point of the story is, hey, I'm I'm interested in telling you a nice story that you'll remember. The point is, no, you and I are supposed to see ourselves in the character of the Good Samaritan. We're supposed to act like the character of the Good Samaritan. If we see ourselves in the character of the priest or the Levite, that's a problem. We're supposed to be the Good Samaritan. When Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, if you're going through a similar thing where you have a child who's walked away from the Lord, an adult child, and you're wondering, am I supposed to go after them? Am I supposed to continue to say more things to them? Or am I supposed to sit back and wait? Both of those things could be viable ways that God uses you to help bring your child back to the Lord. But if God takes you to Luke 15, I'm telling you what he wants you to do is sit at the gate and wait. Not do anything. Don't say anything else. Just sit there hoping, longing, and praying and waiting for God to bring that child back. That's what Luke 15, that's what Luke 15 is there for. In our meditation this morning, we were in Mark 9. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We're supposed to read ourselves into that story like Zach was helping us do. Same thing when we come to the book of Joshua. If you look at the book of Joshua as simply historical book, giving you interesting information about how Israel got into a piece of land, you're going to miss what God is doing. For example, this past Friday, the Supreme Court of the United States decided uh, to make legal same-sex marriages. I know a number of people, when they heard that news, found it to be discouraging. The other predominant emotion was that of fear for a lot of people. Discouragement and fear. What's it going to be like to live in a country that is growing increasingly hostile towards God, His people, and how God says sexual ethics are supposed to take place? How's that going to work itself out? It can be discouraging. It can cause you to be afraid. You hear news like that. But then I say to myself, do you think it's an accident that we're in a book of the Bible whose main verse is, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be discouraged, do not be afraid, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Can it be an accident that the book of Joshua is about God's people living in a land that is hostile towards their presence? Can it be an accident that the people around them in the land are far more powerful than they are, yet they're perfectly safe because God is with them? We're not entering into the book of Joshua simply because there's some interesting stories we want to tell to one another. We're going through the book of Joshua because God is saying to us, do Joshua. Do Joshua. I've put you where you are right now. Do Joshua. Then you will be prosperous. Then you will be successful. Now listen, we're not slaughtering anybody. We're not going to physically move into the Middle East. We're not allotting land. That's not what doing Joshua means. 
doing Joshua means you and I are living the character of Joshua, the character of Israel, the character of Rahab. We're trying not to be the character of Achan. We want to be the character of Caleb, Manasseh, Gad, Reuben, those tribes. As we live those out, as we do those stories, you know what God's promised us? Success. Meditate on God's word day and night. Do everything written in it. And the huge, huge mistake is if we look through the book of Joshua only for specific commands addressed to us and do those, we'll have missed it. God said, I wrote the book of Joshua for you. I wrote it for you as a church right now for where you're at. I wrote it to reassure you. Look, I'm in charge of what happens. And it doesn't matter who is aligned against you. It doesn't matter what kind of power people exercise. If I am with you, you're going to be okay. That's the message of the book of Joshua. If I'm with you, it's going to be fine. Better than fine, you're going to be successful. Just obey. Have the courage to do what I tell you to do. And the reason why this sermon is so important is because God is saying, look, I got stories that I've already written that if you will simply live into those characters and behave the way they behave in those situations, you will experience power and grace to handle whatever is coming your way. And if you look in the Bible for a specific command about how do you act in a country like the country we find ourselves now in, or a specific command about how to handle a conversation you're about to have with a neighbor, you may not find them. But what you will find are stories of God's people trusting God in the midst of adverse circumstances, seeing God show up in power and in protection and in grace, using God's people to share the good news of Jesus Christ in a hostile environment, and seeing God rescue people out of such a thing for his eternal glory. I don't think it's an accident that this morning... We got to commission a family to go to Uganda in the midst of adverse situation that God is going to use them to bless people. God's like, look, I've got this. I know what I'm doing. I can handle these things. What the nations do, what governments decide, what people are up to, that doesn't affect what I do. And I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. I'm with you. Every scripture in the Bible is God-breathed. They're all profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. Not just the commands. The whole thing. And if you and I are careful to do everything written in it, we will experience uh, prosperity and success. And the point is, if you've never tried this, read yourself into the story that God's put you in. Whatever story he's turned you to, whether it's in your daily reading as we go through the book of Joshua, wherever you are, read yourself into that story. Act like Jesus acted in that story. Act like Stephen acted in that story. Act like Joshua's acting in that story. Act like Mary is acting in that story. Because when you do that, you will be doing those scriptures. You and I may be familiar with the idea, okay, give me the Ten Commandments and I'll try to obey them. That's great, please, please. This is great. That's good. But it does leave out huge sections of Scripture. And if right now you're going through a divorce that you didn't want to have, 
or you've lost a loved one that you thought you lost way too early, or you've been diagnosed with something you didn't want to be diagnosed with, or you have a relational issue that you didn't want to have, the drama of life that you're in, God has a script for it. You don't have to go through it wondering, what am I supposed to do? God says, I will tell you. My word is a light to your feet and a lamp to your path. I will lead you through this. Trust me. Walk with me. Listen, the story that you read this week that you meditated on, that's not just an interesting historical story. That's God talking to you saying, you're here. This is you. I'm showing you what to do. I'm showing you how to act. And so if you've never tried this, as you go through the stories of Scripture, read yourself into them and ask the Lord, how do I do this? Let's pray together. Lord, we want to be a people who are faithful to you, to do everything that you've written to us in your word. God, forgive us for cutting out sections and simply ignoring them because, well, they didn't say things the way we wanted them to be said. God, I pray that right now, Lord, for some who came here this morning experiencing discouragement and fear, Lord, I pray that you would read them, Joshua 1, and tell them that that's exactly where they are, right here, hearing your command, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, I'm with you. Lord, for those who are here who are walking a difficult road, one that Stephen already walked, or Paul, or Mary, or Hannah, Lord God, I pray that you would help us to see past the the, the letter of the law, that we might see at the deeper point where the connections are. God, I pray that you would enable us to live into these characters, into these stories in such a way that we are doing the things uh, that you've written for us to do. God, we're trusting you in this. Left to ourselves, we'd not be able to do this. But by your spirit, God, would you help us? Would you guide us? Would you lead us? Lord, would you help us to take our eyes off of the news and everything happening in the world? And would you help us to meditate on your word day and night so that we will be careful to do everything written in it? God, we're asking you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.